I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Peter, 1 Peter, as we take a excursion from the book of Acts to look at the subject of persecution in 1 Peter chapter 3, and our scripture reading will come in verses 13 through 17, the subject of handling persecution. Back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, we ended with Peter and John who had just healed the lame man. And they preached to the multitudes in Solomon's colonnade, and the religious leaders put them in jail, questioning them, and they had the opportunity to proclaim Christ. That was the first Christian persecution in Peter's second sermon. And it is probably at the forefront of his mind, perhaps, the things that he experienced as he gives to these believers who are scattered about Asia Minor instruction on how to handle persecution. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Our text reads, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Let's bow before we begin our study once again. O Father, once again. It is a blessing to hear from you, from your precious word, which is eternal, which will never fade. And Father, grant to us understanding and grant to us wisdom in the application of your word so that you, Father, would be glorified. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Accounts of Christian persecution around the world are not difficult to find. In Jordan, there was a man named Muhammad Abad. He was a convert to Christianity. He was arrested because of his conversion on charges of apostasy. He refused to renounce his Christian faith. He was found guilty and he was stripped of all of his civil rights. The court ruled stating that he no longer had a legal religious identity and therefore possessed no property rights and could not legally be employed. It also declared his marriage annulled so that he could only remarry his wife if he converted back to Islam. Potentially, he could lose custody of his children. Having received death threats from his brothers, he fled the country. Or another account of a 40-something-year-old woman who lived in the city of North 
Goyang province in North Korea. She was caught with a Bible in her home. She was taken out of her home. An army officer arrived to live there. The woman was publicly shot to death at a threshing floor of a farm. Government officials demanded that there be one witness to the execution who later said, quote, I was curious as to why she was to be shot. Somebody told me she had kept a Bible at her home. Unquote. It's not simply opposition to Christianity overseas that is of concern. There's growing opposition to Christ even in America. According to a Washington Times article just last month entitled Persecution of Christians on the Rise, Americans say a poll. In just two years, the number of Americans who think Christians are facing growing intolerance in the U.S. has drastically increased. 63% of respondents in a LifeWay research survey said they agree or strongly agree Christians are facing growing levels of persecution. There's a man named Greg Zhao. He's the director of campus engagement and vice president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He said that the poll is not just a perception. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is a campus ministry on university campuses. He said the nation is, quote, reevaluating the privileged place that religion had in its past. He says, quote, a couple of decades ago, for instance, universities were delighted when we started a chapter because we were considered a moral and calming influence on campus excesses, he said. They thought it was excellent. They needed help leavening the party culture. Now, of course, Christians are no longer considered to be morally virtuous additions to a community. I think Christians are actually considered moral problems to solve, particularly because of human sexuality issues, unquote. And that opinion to, in an opposition to Christianity that is on the rise seems to be substantiated. In a report, a joint report done by Liberty Institute along with Family Research Council that was issued just a few years ago, they documented a growing anti-Christian persecution even here in America on the rise, listing such things that have happened among those listed in this joint report, such as city officials that would prohibit senior citizens from praying over their meals, listening to religious messages, or singing gospel songs at a senior activities center, or a public school official who physically lifted an elementary school little boy from his seat and reprimanded him in front of his classmates for praying over his lunch, or the U.S. Department of Justice that argued before the Supreme Court that the federal government can tell churches and synagogues which pastors and rabbis it can hire and fire. The state of Texas sought to approve and regulate what religious seminaries can teach. A federal judge held that prayers before a state house of representatives could be to Allah, but not to Jesus. These are simply legal attempts to suppress Christianity and subvert the Constitution, which has protected the freedom of religion. But who knows where we'll be 10 years from now? I'm sure that many of you look past and 
think to yourselves, boy, two years ago it just wasn't like this, what we face now. But perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise either. Jesus reminded his disciples in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I'm sure that the words of Jesus were ringing in the ears of the apostle Peter as he was arrested for preaching Jesus, as we looked at in Acts chapter 4 just last week. He and John were arrested because they were preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the Savior, indicting the religious leaders for crucifying their Messiah. And having had that experience of facing persecution and opposition by religious leaders of his day, how does he respond? How does he respond? How does he instruct others to respond? And that is what we find here in today's text. Today's text was written to Christians who had scattered about all of Asia Minor shortly before or shortly after the persecution that was instigated by Nero's burning of Rome. They had scattered abroad and because, you see, they were all mostly huddled in Jerusalem and this was God's way of bringing the gospel throughout all of Asia Minor, but they faced persecution on a widespread level. And the subject of persecution begins all the way back in chapter 2, verses 11, all the way to chapter 3, as to how we are to live in a non-Christian world. And it stems back to chapter 2, verse 12, where it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, that we're to submit ourselves to, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether as to a king or one in authority. And it goes on saying that we are to keep our behavior excellent. That we're to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that the thing in which they slander us as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God, glorify God in the day of visitation. It goes on to describe the relationships we're to have and how we're to behave in 213 to 15, that we submit ourselves and we're to submit to our government, we're to submit to our employers, we're to submit to our family relationships in which we're called. Everyone here lives underneath some governing authority. Where you work, you have a supervisor. Where you live, you have your city. You have police. You have Judges, you have governing officials, we have the federal government, we have the president, we have our family on a micro level. Children have parents and all of these relationships, God has established authority in which we are to submit underneath that authority. You say, well, what about my teacher or my boss or my government that treats me unfairly? It says to be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Verse 18, for this finds favor, chapter 2, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated? 
you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. Peter sums up our calling in this, that our calling is to be a blessing by living a good and submissive life to authority. That we, if we want to see good life and good days, he continues on, we're to turn from doing wrong, we watch what we say and do, we do what is right, and that honors God. That honors God. Specifically, though, how are we to endure? How are we to endure? How are we to hold up under persecution? And he gives six ways, six ways, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. And he begins by telling them, you are blessed. He begins by telling them, verse 14, do not be afraid or worried. He tells them to make Christ supreme in your heart. He tells them to be ready to defend your faith. He reminds them to keep a good conscience, and he reminds them that persecution is a part of God's will. First of all, he reminds them to remember that they are blessed. Remember that they are blessed. When you are persecuted, remember that you are blessed. Who is there, verse 13 of chapter 3, to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, generally, people aren't going to harm you when you're doing good. That's most people. Peter states it as a generality. If you're zealous to do what is good and right, generally speaking, people will not harm you. But Peter knows it's not always going to be the case because he states the opposite by saying, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, the question is, how are you blessed? How am I blessed if I am suffering for doing what is right? Well, first of all, you appreciate the suffering of Christ for you. You appreciate the suffering of Christ for you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 is a very, very key passage of the blessing that we have as Paul writes to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He states there, writing to the Philippian church, this letter that is filled with great joy, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. It has been granted to you for Christ's sake. Not only to believe, and we all love that, in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That has also been granted to you. It has been granted to you to believe. It has also been granted to you to also suffer for his sake. Experience the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, it is a privilege. What a privilege it is to experience the same suffering as Christ did. And when you do, you're all the more grateful. Now you say, how does that work? I don't want to suffer. That doesn't sound very pleasant. If you think of it like this, perhaps many of you have parents, maybe you have grandparents or great-grandparents who are immigrants, who come to this country. Maybe they, were, uh, maybe they were poor and they went through the Depression. Maybe they survived a war. Maybe they had tremendous health challenges. Maybe they were mistreated by the government. And when you hear and you listen to your grandparents' stories of the difficulties and the hardships that they went through, or even the stories of your own parents, the more 
and more you hear, the more grateful you are for their sacrifice so that you could have the opportunities and the life that you now have. And maybe even you've come to know Christ because of them. But the depth of that appreciation is even greater when you yourself experience a taste of perhaps what they had gone through. You yourself experience a taste of that hardship. And you can say to yourself, you know what, I remember my grandparents or I remember my parents who said that they had such a hard time with this when this happened in their life. And you grow in your appreciation and you desire to pass on that appreciation and gratitude to your own children. That is tremendously motivating. When you learn about how much someone else has done for you so that you could have the opportunities that you have now, that is tremendously motivating. And that is the blessing of suffering, of sharing in the suffering of Christ. It is a blessing when we live a godly life and we suffer for it and we realize this is what the Lord Jesus went through so that I could have eternal life. And that is only a small portion of what Christ went through in his life. His experience, the same conflict, verse 30, which you saw in me, Philippians 1, now here to be in me. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, Matthew 5.11 says, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Remember you are blessed by God when you suffer for righteousness. Because great then will be your appreciation and great then will be your motivation knowing that Christ suffered so that you could do what you ought to do and not be in bondage to sin. Secondly, do not be afraid or worried of intimidation, Peter says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, verse 14. Do not be afraid or worried of intimidation. We're to be those who, first of all, remember that we are blessed, but secondly, we're to remember and not to be afraid or worried of their intimidation. The greatest thing oftentimes that keeps people from doing what they ought to do is fear, is fear, fear of losing a relationship, fear of what others may think of you, fear of losing your job, fear of the financial circumstances that your family might face, fear of this or that, or fear of what people might do, their intimidation. If you say certain things, you're afraid they'll retaliate. They will call you names. And these days, there are lots of names that people call Christians for the positions that they take. And what it all boils down to is what the Bible calls the fear of man. The fear of man. That's what it is referred to oftentimes in the Old Testament. The fear of man. And that's what troubles us often the most. What causes us to not do what is good and right. You imagine people have no trouble singing on a big stage in a Broadway show if there's no audience there. But once you fill that room with people, then suddenly all of that fear comes in because we fear that we're going to be judged. We're intimidated by others. Today, one of the most notable things in fear is the subject of bullying whether it's on Facebook or Snapchat or gossip websites or the issue of verbal abuse of what they call Christians is easy to see in our society. Unless you think that this particular thing of being intimidated or being afraid by what others may say or do or text you or whatever it may be, it is not just from men or boys. 
Girls, according to a 2006 Clemson University studies, are nearly twice as likely to bully or be bullied electronically than boys. Bullying, by the way, of websites or emails or text messages or cell phone calls, whatever, electronically. Another long-term study showed girls are responsible for 61% of in-person bullying incidences. Making matters worse, physical violence, once the domain of boys has thoroughly infiltrated girl culture. The U.S. Department of Justice reported that between 92 and 2003, the number of girls arrested for assault rose 41%. Versus boys, the increase was only 4.3%. This whole thing about the fear of intimidation by what others may say and do because you are a Christian, because you say certain things, or because you are going to take particular positions, people can use those threats. And Peter reminds us not to be intimidated. Do not fear. Do not worry about their intimidation. Do not worry about the labels by which they might label you or call you names. If you're afraid or don't know what this is all about, all you have to do is go on some site such as YouTube or other places that have some sort of display of email that might allow public comment. And we'll see underneath some of those videos that propagate Christian truth, plenty of comments, vehement comments. You'll find plenty of inflammatory, abusive comments against Christ. Being afraid of others and coming to Succumbing to intimidation, Jesus addresses in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, Jesus encourages us, don't be afraid of what people think. Be afraid of what God thinks. Fear God and keep His commandments, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, for this applies to every person. Don't be afraid of he who can kill the body and the, kill the body but unable to kill the soul. Because if you're not even afraid of dying, the worst thing of dying for your faith, it'll make it a lot easier for you to live your faith because your eyes are on eternity. So, If you and your family suffer for doing what is right, remember you are blessed. Don't be afraid or worried about those who intimidate you. Thirdly, make Christ supreme in your heart, verse 15. Make Christ supreme in your heart, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The word sanctify means to set apart. To sanctify Christ as Lord means that we affirm His Lordship. We affirm His deity, that God is a one who is in control, and that He will take care of everything for our good and for His glory, for His purposes. Many times people are afraid to lose their job, lose their well-being, when they suffer for what is right. When we turn our eyes upon God, God is the one who will provide. And the sad part about it all is that more often than not we fail to live with eyes looking upwards at God, and we fear people. 1 Peter 2.21, it tells us just in the chapter prior, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When you're mistreated, when you are uh, mistreated because of what you believe, don't revile back. Entrust yourself to God. Sanctify Christ. Make him first in your life and keep your eyes on him. Pastor Nobel Alexander was in prison in Cuba for 22 years. And he said this. He was in prison for his faith. He said, in spite of the painful reflections and memories, I have no time for bitterness. My life is filled with too much happiness, too much loving, caring people to allow myself to be devoured by the cancer of hate. I rejoice, I sing, I laugh, I celebrate, because I know that my God reigns supreme over all the forces of evil and destruction Satan has ever devised. And best of all, my God reigns supreme in me. Sanctify Christ in your heart. Fourthly, not only are we to remember we're blessed, not only are we not to be afraid of others' intimidations, not only do we make Christ supreme in our heart, fourthly, be ready to defend your faith with gentleness and reverence. Be ready to defend your faith with gentleness and reverence. Verse 15, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The word defense there is the word from which we get the word apologetics, to defend our faith. And it refers to our faith, this hope that we have in Christ Jesus, this hope of salvation, this hope of heaven, this hope of eternal life, this hope that we have because we have forgiveness of sins. When our faith is challenged, when our faith is questioned, don't back away and say, well, you know what? I don't want to say anything to offend them. I'm just not going to say anything. Now, while that may be appropriate in some circumstances to do that because it may not be the appropriate time or whatnot, but don't fear, don't be afraid. Be ready to give them an answer why you believe what you believe. Why are you a Christian? This is an opportunity to witness. You look at opposition as an opportunity to witness. It's like... A, it's like in the way of the master, when you've seen some of those videos on evangelism, and he does street evangelism, and, he, and, and he li- it's amazing because he always likes it if there is a particular heckler in the crowd because the heckler brings up certain objections by which he wants to address that people may be thinking, but they are, are sometimes too afraid to ask. And so... It's an opportunity. When we are perhaps heckled or when we are perhaps made fun of, it's an opportunity to witness, an opportunity to share, to be prepared as to why we believe what we believe and why we live the way that we live. Don't push it off onto others. It is not the pastor's job to answer your friend's questions. It's not the church's job to say, well, I just believe whatever my church believes. We take personal responsibility to understand and understand the Word of God so that we can use the Word of God in opportunities to share our faith. 
when others are opposed, because each and every person is responsible for the faith that they have. It says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, who is you? You is you. People ask you, they didn't ask me. I've had people come and say, would you come and meet my friend so that you can answer his questions? I said, well, they asked you, not me. They have no idea who I am. I said, that's good. You see, then you'll show, no, I want to help you to understand what you believe so you can answer your friend. It'll help you for the future. And it's important to know what you believe and why you believe it because how can you ever share then with people That is why Bible studies and Sunday school and seminaries and online training, there's a wealth of resources for us to know the Word of God, to be equipped to give an answer for the hope that you have within them. Don't be afraid or intimidated. Don't be afraid or intimidated. I've I've seen some Christians, you know, riding on an airplane. I love riding on an airplane. You have a captive audience. But this is when I was watching a Christian across across the aisle. I watched a Christian across the aisle, and the person next to the the Christian said to them, who is not a Christian, he said, why are you a Christian? I mean, what a wonderful question. I mean, you want to, I mean, just open the door wide. Why are you a Christian? And the Christian looked over at me, and he didn't say anything. And I feel like he didn't ask me. He asked you. We were on the way on a mission trip for all things, my goodness. The Bible says also with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. I know I was at an apologetics conference. This is where people are learn to defend the faith. And I, I attended, attended once where there was a speaker. There's some of, some of the speakers that, that somebody asked me later on, well, what did you think of the speakers at the conference? And I, I, I honestly felt some of them came across rather abrasive, rather caustic, rather curt. And somehow some of them sort of put me off. When we're defending our faith, the Bible doesn't say to be belligerent. It doesn't say to go and wear a sandwich board and stand in the middle of Red Square and tell people off. It tells us, doesn't tell us to be rude or offensive or angry. It doesn't tell us to be sarcastic or scathing. It tells us with gentleness and reverence. And here, Peter is not addressing false teachers, okay? He's not addressing false teachers. He's not addressing false teaching in which we see Paul and James and Jesus come across very strongly against that category of people and teaching. What we're talking about are people who have mistreated you and see the good life that you live even under mistreatment, and they ask about you. Why do you live that way? Why do you take it from your boss? Why do you take it when it's so unfair? What an opportunity, an open door that is, to share with gentleness and with reverence that it is because of God. It is because of my Lord Jesus. And you sanctify Him as supreme in your heart. You're not afraid because you're not worried about their intimidation because what a blessing it is to experience what Christ experienced even in a small way. Fifthly, we're to keep a good conscience, to keep a good conscience, verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And we're to keep a good conscience when mistreated. 
The conscience is a, is a guard. It's, it's not your God. It is not your guide. It is a guard. The conscience is a, is a warning system for your soul. It's not the final authority. You know, some people think, well, my conscience is my guide, and so, you know, I don't feel bad about doing this, and therefore it's okay to do because my conscience doesn't bother me. That's not right. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he said, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. You can have a conscience that is biblically informed on the one hand, or you can have a conscience that is seared on the other hand. But a person's conscience is not always right, not always biblical. It's not the final authority. But simply because, and simply because your conscience doesn't convict you doesn't make something necessarily right or wrong. When we look at the Bible and we study this idea of the conscience and what does the Bible say about the conscience, there are four conditions, conditions of the conscience that the Bible speaks of. And I'll tell you those four here. The first one is that a person can have a seared conscience, a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 2.4.2. 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, he's speaking of false teachers, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You can have a seared conscience. That's why you don't feel bad about certain things that might be immoral. Such a conscience has been silenced through perhaps bad theology, perhaps a repetitive sin. When you sin over and over, you pummel your conscience and you, you pummel your conscience into silence and it's whimpering, pleading for you is no longer heard. Your conscience has been defiled and it is no longer sensitive to sin as it has been before. And that is a seared conscience. Another type of conscience that the Bible speaks of is an untrained conscience or an ignorant conscience. Ignorant or untrained conscience. And the Bible speaks of this in Leviticus 4 when it speaks of sacrifices that are to be made for unintentional sin. Simply because you didn't know doesn't absolve you of the guilt of a sin. Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Ignorance or untrained conscience or conscience doesn't know. Thirdly, another type of conscience besides a seared conscience and an untrained or ignorant conscience is an overactive, or what the Bible calls a weak conscience, a weak conscience. Romans 14, verse 1, it says, now accept, this is about the, the, the meat offered to idols, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord will is able to make him stand. Sometimes there are differences between Christians. There are differences between Christians on things that are not specifically spelled out in the Bible. Many a times, some colloquially call these gray areas. And within these areas, there are different convictions that people have. 
And some people, they may come out of a, perhaps a, a legalistic tradition or maybe a, perhaps a tradition that is much more loose or a tradition that is much more traditional or whatever it may be. They may feel that things need to be done in a certain way or that you don't do certain things, whatever it may be. A long time ago, there were people who said, well, on Sundays, you don't ever you can't uh, play cards, you can't read the comics, and everyone must dress up and not do anything. Some probably still believe that, not around here, I'm sure, but there are those who come out of a belief system like that, and that's their conviction. Now, that's not biblical, that might be something that people might do for various reasons, but those types of things that are oversensitive to issues the Bible calls weak or an overactive conscience. And in this particular context in Romans chapter 14, what it is speaking of, it is speaking of an individual who's come out of a pagan background in which meat that was offered to idols is now served because there was a butcher shop there that was, you know, they sold cheap meat and they would sell it out the back and somebody buys cheap meat, but this person is sitting there and there they are offered meat for dinner or for supper, or whatever it is, and there that meat is there, and they have a revulsion to that meat because they came out of a pagan background in which they used to eat that meat. But it reminds them of that which is in the past, their idolatrous life, and it speaks of a person who is their brother, who is there as well, and the question is, should that person eat or not eat? And how they have different convictions. The one who is oversensitive about that particular area has a weak conscience. So you have a seared conscience, you have an ignorant conscience, you have a weak or oversensitive conscience, and the Bible lastly talks about that, which is a good conscience, a good conscience or a clear conscience. Hebrews 13, 18, for example, speaks of that. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. A good conscience and a sincere faith. A good conscience is a conscience that has been well-informed, well-trained. It is a conscience that is sensitive to the Spirit of God. You see, because the person who is a Christian... The person who is a Christian, their conscience is guided by two powerful things. One, the Spirit of God. Two, by the Word of God. As the Word of God is implanted within their heart, as they begin to learn spiritual truth, they'll be reminded by the Spirit of God, which brings it to mind. Who brings it to mind? The truth of what we are to be sensitive to, how we are to hate sin, how we are to love particular things. And the Bible tells us what those things are. And the conscience is there informed, and it will convict. It will be sensitized. A person who has a seared conscience because they have come out of an immoral lifestyle, for example, can have their conscience then resensitized as the Word of God sanctifies their heart and their conscience becomes once again sensitized to hate that which is evil and to love that which is good because it learns what is evil and good. And so too can the ignorant conscience and so too can the weak conscience that we don't do things simply because, well, I don't feel bad about it. We do things because the Word of God tells us or doesn't tell us 
And the principle in the Bible related to the conscience is that we are never to violate our conscience, even if it is weak. If it is weak, we are not to violate it against our own conscience. You pummel your conscience and you change it through pummeling. That is not what God says. We are to do as our conscience, never to violate what our conscience tells us. We are to be people who have a clear conscience, who has a well-informed conscience. And that is why it, once again, is so important to learn the Word of God, that the Spirit of God might use His Word in our heart and our life to properly inform our conscience, so that when it comes to things that are not specifically spelled out in the Scriptures, we know how to apply the Scriptures to various contexts. Because the conscience, you see, is like a skylight. I have this skylight in my home and it, the conscience is not like a light bulb. And that skylight, every, every year or so, it, it gets dirty and it clouds out the light. And I need to climb to the roof and clean it off because the dirt obscures all the light. It only lets the light in that is not obscured. And having a clear conscience is like that, that we might be able to have that clean light, that we might be able to see out very clearly what God would say. One must not violate their conscience. They have a good conscience. So, when we are facing difficulties or persecution, we remember how blessed we are. We're not to be afraid or worried about intimidation by others. We're not to be people who are afraid of people, but to fear God. Thirdly, we're to make Christ supreme. Fourthly, we're to be ready to defend our faith. Fifthly, to keep a good conscience. And sixthly, we are to realize that persecution is a part of God's will. Persecution is a part of God's will. For it is better, verse 17 of 1 Peter 3, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. You might suffer. You might suffer and have a difficult time in life. It doesn't mean that some people think that, well, you only suffer if you sin. It's not true. God may will it that you suffer. He may will it that you suffer for doing what is right. That is all a part of God's will. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28, God has His sovereign purposes. And perhaps that purpose is so that others would see how you bear up underneath mistreatment. How you conduct yourself when you are maligned. How you, how you don't gossip or how you don't slander or how you don't fight back against those who might persecute you. And when they ask, then you're able to share. What an opportunity it is to share. It is because my Lord and Savior suffered far beyond what I'm feeling now. And be able to witness and testify of God's grace in our life. Peter mentions that if we're going to suffer, then suffer for righteousness, not for what is wrong. This is the type of suffering. We're not talking about here suffering, oh, I'm suffering because now I've uh, been caught speeding and now my ticket is $150. And that's, this is suffering for doing what is right, doing what is right. It's not talking about suffering in your health. It's not talking about suffering because of your bad attitude or your mistreatment at work. This is talking about suffering because you are a believer. This is suffering for doing what is right, persecuted at the hands of unbelievers who may ask about the hope that we have within us. If we suffer for doing what is right, 
If we consider, as Martin Luther says, the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all, he writes, for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ, unquote. As Charles Spurgeon has on his wall a plaque, Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. In the furnace of affliction. So how are we to bear up? We're to submit to the governing authorities that are above us, but our attitude is to remember that we are blessed when we suffer. How much more grateful we will be when we have the privilege of suffering and sharing in the suffering of Christ. How much more grateful will we be when we realize how much Christ has gone through? We are blessed. We are not to be afraid or worried about the intimidation of others, afraid of men or what they might be able to do to us, afraid of losing our job, afraid of what mothers might say, afraid of the names that they might call us, afraid of the penalty that we might incur for being a Christian. We're to make Christ supreme in our hearts, to set him apart, to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and finish of our faith. Fourthly, to defend our faith with gentleness, with reverence, to keep a good and clear conscience, verse 16, and remember that persecution is a part of God's will. Testimony for the cause of Christ, a testimony for the gospel, for doing what is right and doing the will of God. One of my friends expressed this well, that they would rather suffer hardship and difficulties and to do without all of the trappings of materialism to suffer for Christ, even for that, for the sake of the gospel, because far greater is the satisfaction and the spiritual reward in suffering for the king. It echoes the sentiment of a Vietnamese pastor who was imprisoned for his faith when he said, we have learned that suffering is not the worst thing in the world. Disobedience is, unquote. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Even on this Memorial Day weekend, we remember the sacrifices of others who have suffered for us, that we might gather in freedom today to worship you. And Father, I pray that we might be faithful soldiers of Christ, faithful in the battle to be faithful to engage in spiritual warfare on our knees as we call upon you to help us to live godly lives that will impact a world for all of eternity. May we be found faithful 
bearing up under mistreatment, having the courage as Peter and John did to preach Christ and be willing to take loss for the sake of our Savior. Give us courage, O God. Give us a resolve that determines beforehand that when it comes to pass, that we will be people who will speak the truth in love, to say the name of Jesus, and to be able, Father, to have courage and know that we are blessed despite how others may treat us. In Jesus' name, amen.